We need to be followers of Christ, followers and not just believers. I think Christ is sick and tired of believers, people who just believe. He wants people to get up and to follow after him. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is your buddy, Mike Gomer-Gormley. I'm not here with Dave Van Vickle. We are continuing. This is the third part of our six-part series, Walking Through Brandon Vought's Return, How to Bring Your Child Back to the Church. It's a wonderful book. I would encourage you all to get it. Uh, check out the Every Knee Shall Bow episode where we interviewed Brandon Vought. That guy is a gift to the church. So what I did, I took his book and I turned it into a series called Draw Them Back to Church. Not just your kid, but your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, your neighbors, you know, your own parents, whatever it might be. We had a room of 50 adults ranging in age of 22 to, I don't know, about 100 it seemed like. And we are going on a journey together. People are saying the names of the people that we are uh, in the class for, and we're doing intercessory prayer for everyone. In this one, week three, we took chapters four and seven of Brandon Vaught's book. Then we call this one Empathy for the Outsider. So we go through five mistakes that will almost certainly keep them away. Brandon Vaught does a great job bringing out these mistakes of how to draw your child back to the church. And then we do five ways to draw them into a loving relationship with you. And each of these we break open, we go through uh, in order to help us be better and more patient evangelists, especially with those that we are close to and love. I hope you enjoy week three, Empathy for the Outsider. God bless. What God is calling us into this place is to be the saints that he created us to be. A book I'm going to recommend, I think I already recommended this before, Saints in the World, is written by... I believe uh, Jesus Ortega was a, uh, well, I could just look at the back. Yeah, he was. Uh, Opus Dei priest, followed in the footsteps of St. Jose Maria Escrava. This book is awesome. I love this book. This is one of those, oh, you want to be cuddled? And it's like a kick in the pants, right? Saints in the world. Saints in the world. It's a good book. So here's a book called The Wisdom of the Word. I'm going to recommend this. This is the latest Word on Fire book. Uh, Brandon Vaught uh, is an internet friend of mine, which kind of sounds creepy sometimes, but uh, he signed me up for free because I'm an influencer for uh, Word of Fire Institute stuff. Uh, it's called Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions About Catholicism. I really enjoy this. I just interviewed one of the authors this morning at 7.30 in the morning. I was alert for that one. Um, let me just walk you through. The 10 chapters are 10 different questions, so let me just walk you through some of them. Why believe in God and in Jesus Christ? Why listen to the church? That was you know, one of them. Does the Holy Spirit actually transform Christians? How can Christ's blood be good news, right? Why would God hold our faults against us? Why not live and think like everyone else? Why care for the poor? Why is the church so strict about sex? Why do Catholics fight so much with each other? What? Uh, are the saints of the church too strange to be relevant? So we had about an hour and 10 minute conversation this morning. And uh, it, was, it was great. He is a professor at Ave Maria University in Florida. And we just talked about like, what was your methodology for this? And it was just a, a really cool conversation. Because one of the things that Brandon Bott talks about in the second or third half of the book is one, the most important thing you can do is pray. Second most important thing you can do is listen, and then somewhere further down the list is talk. But within that context, right, you have to know what the church teaches, right? You have to know what the church teaches and how to articulate it. That's what we're going to do next week for the next four sessions. We're going to go through how to present the church's teaching, how to understand the church's teaching, how to evangelize. We're going to tackle many issues such as the church is teaching on sexual matters, especially gay marriage, LGBT stuff. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff like that because these are the principal objections that survey after survey after survey survey says. Uh, I feel like a little, little family feud that um, that are the main objections to of young adults or or whomever to the Catholic faith. So again, here's the book by Brandon Vaught, Return. You get on wordonfire.org/return. Brandon Vaught does not make a penny off of this book. He wrote it, self-published it, then he updated it uh, this year, a couple months ago, and then published it through Word on Fire. And he doesn't get a penny, all right? Because he believes that people like yourselves need to have this book. Okay, this is not a book you give to your child to say, read this. And be like. 
oh yeah, these surveys are right. This is how I feel, right? No, this is a book for you to equip yourself. Christ challenged the apostles and their successors to equip the saints. That's what we're doing. Uh, today we're going to talk about week three, empathy for the outsider. We're going to pass these papers out. We're going to stop and we're going to pray, especially for the new people in the room who came forward. We're going to pray. This is intercessory prayer. It's not a knowledge game. We're not going to win them because we're cleverer than them. Okay. We're going to win them over because they're going to encounter the love of Jesus Christ. This is not a slot machine. Number one, all slot machines are rigged. But number two, God is not your gopher. He's not your servant. We are his. Okay? So when we get that right, we, we realize God is not my butler who does whatever I want him to. Right? But he's my father. So in the middle of the suffering, God can use the suffering for our sanctity. Okay, that's a pillar of Catholicism. God uses suffering for our sanctity. No suffering should be wasted. Okay, so right now we're going to pray for all the new people that are in this room. We're going to pray for their intentions and, and everyone else. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. Last one, make it count. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The most important part of evangelization is what? Having the right argument. No. Sending them to my voicemail. No. <laughs> if only you would talk to Gormley, right? I get parents saying that all the time. And that's probably true. But, but I can't be everywhere. Uh, no. But your child, spouse, friend, sibling, neighbor, other loved one needs to be listened to and treated with respect. We believe that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God himself and thus are fundamentally good. Okay? Now, I say this because I truly believe it. I truly believe this. If your kiddo or parent or sibling or whatever it might be is baptized, okay, we are at a distinct advantage for he's already behind, quote unquote, enemy lines. <laughs> he's already working in the dark recesses of their hearts, right? He's already moving. He's already shaking and baking, right? So we have to have confidence, not in our ability to win and woo, but in his ability to do what he promises, okay? So let me ask you a real quick question. Are you the savior? No. Okay, is Jesus the savior? Yes. Okay, so if Jesus is the savior, how is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh-oh, I did it again, okay? As Britney Spears says, how is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Formulaic? Cold, distant, we're dating, but we're not married, <laughs> committed, but it's complicated. No, how is your relationship with Christ? Is he the center of your life or is he in your top 10? Top five, top three, hey, that's pretty top, right? John 15, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. And he cuts away all of those branches that does not bear fruit. And those that do bear fruit, he prunes so they bear even more fruit. You are the branch, Jesus is the vine. The beautiful thing about that analogy is where the branch comes off the main stalk of the vine, you can't really definitively say that's the vine, that's the branch, because they mold and grow into one another, right? That's the point. Jesus wants to make his life your life. Jesus does not want your life to be photocopied onto his life, right? That's where we get it all wrong. We keep, what, what's that phrase? Uh, God made us in his image and likeness, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since, right? <laughs> so what we need to do is humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves, right? It, it comes from the same word for earth or dirt. We need to get low spiritually. We need to understand that I am not equipped to solve every problem to be the savior. I'm not, but I know a guy. I know a guy, and this guy knows me, knows my child, knows my brother, family, wife, nieces, nephews, parents, whatever it might be, and he's moving. He's not still. Do you believe that? 
Okay, because if you believe in a sovereign God of the universe who sent his only son into the world in the fullness of time, then no weapon of the enemy can stop us. But God will not, as St. Augustine said, though he created us without us, he will not save us without us. He has called us with a beautiful dignity to be co-creators of his life in people's lives, to be co-operators. He is calling us into the great dignity of being evangelists, okay? Evangelism is not a Protestant word, okay? But when we think of evangelism, we might think of evangelical, but we certainly don't think of Catholics who are hemorrhaging six out of every, uh, you know, six young adults for every one young adult that becomes Catholics. The Greek Orthodox and Jews have more people coming into their church every year than Catholics do. Okay, so just think about that. The Greek Orthodox, a largely ethnic-based Christian church, and Judaism, an entirely ethnic-based religion, is drawing in more people into their faith per year than we are. It's almost as if we want to self-sabotage. So what do we want to do? Well, the evangelizing stuff, that's for the priest. That's why he wears that black stuff and does the mass and is all up front. And the priest is like, that evangelizing stuff... That's for my people. They're the ones out in the world. They're the ones commingling with the masses of humanity. I'm just up here in my cool black shirt, right, doing the things in my vestments up here. See, that's the problem, is we keep thinking it's the other person's responsibility. Vatican II, you know, they say, uh, uh, threw open the windows of the church, right? The idea is we got to let the light in. All the goodness of the world we got to affirm. But here's the funny thing. We're like, yeah, we're laity. Yeah, we're empowered. And then we walked out the front door of the church. And we're like, here we go, world. And then the world turns out hates us. So then we look around. We're like, whoa, it is cold out here. I'm going to do a U-turn. I'm going to go back into the church. And I'm going to become a sacristan. Right? Why? Not because sacristans are bad. I'm not mocking sacristans. But what I'm saying is it's easy to play the safe game. And we're being cowards as a church. We're being cowards as a church. But also on top of this, this is... One of the things that exposes us. Cardinal George from Chicago one time said, uh, you love that which you evangelize. You love that which you evangelize. So the question is, do we love Jesus? Then why why are we seemingly afraid to share him? Not in a weirdo way. I know I just sat next to you on the plane, but can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's a bit intense sometimes, right? I mean, I've done it, but it's a bit intense. (laughs) I did more heavy breathing when I said it. But uh, so the question is, do you love Jesus Christ, number one, or do you love your neighbor? Right? Because if you love him, you'd want him to be known. If you love them, you'd want them to know him. That's the idea. Okay. But we all know, right? If you ever have a friend who sells stuff as an MLM, right? That sometimes the stuff you love can be very annoying, right? You can badger, you can nag, you can just overwhelm. So what we want to do is give you the strategies, God bless you, to give you the strategies in order to lovingly win your child or brother or whomever back to the faith. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Here we go. Any questions about that? Okay. So my question for you, Right? This is personal examination time. Do you love Jesus Christ? I don't shake your head yes. <laughs> People are like, I do, I do. You're not trying to impress me. I don't know you. Right? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you sit there and say, Lord, I need more of my heart to be filled with you. Do you look for places in your life that are devoid of the lordship of Jesus Christ? And you want to bring Christ into that. Right? Have you ever stepped out boldly for your faith? The majority of Catholics, I'm not saying you, probably the people who aren't here, but the other, you know, those Catholics, the majority of Catholics would say they've never done that. They, they don't even know what to do when someone says, are you saved? You're like, uh, uh, I went to church. I go to church. I was confirmed, right? Like they don't, we don't have the language. We don't have the language because this book, right? The Catechism of the Catholic Church. Very rarely do we ever crack it open and just say, I, I wonder what I'm told I believe, right? We have to make this our own. Faith is first and foremost a trustful surrender to Jesus Christ, right? So do you trust him? You can believe in a bunch of stuff, but it becomes supernatural faith when what is revealed becomes the center of your life and you're leading from that place of trust, right? You ever done a trust fall? Like you ever have your like company where like, we're going to do, uh, we're going to do team building exercise. And everyone's like, ah, crap. Right. And so you go and you do a trust fall. You get up on a podium or a platform, trust and you fall back into people's arms. I had a bunch of football, high school football players drop me. Shelly was there. Uh, a bunch of high school football players dropped me. 
I fell on the fell on the ground head first. Father John Ignatius was walking by. He's like, oh my goodness, right? So then I get right back up. I kick all the football players to the back of the line, made all the tiny little girls come up to the front. And I climbed back up and, they, and I fell over again and they all caught me, right? And I shamed the football players, right? But uh, think of what that is. That's trust. I trust that they are going to catch me. Now, what I did in that moment, right, of getting right back on that podium and doing again, doing it again, is I knew that those kids, if paying attention, are trustworthy. They are worthy of my trust. How many of us have spiritually crashed, emotionally crashed, maybe even physically been damaged, wounded by this world, and pulled back our trust? So what we want to do is we want to let the gospel of Jesus Christ begin to heal those wounds. For some of you, the key to bringing your children home is not a well-placed argument, but a necessary interior healing of something that has gone on in their lives. Okay, and it, it's not necessarily your fault because parents are quick to blame themselves, aren't we? Like we're always like, like my my kids could not care less about the church. I'm like, I get paid to do this professionally. Just smile when you're at mass for five seconds. Father Tom is looking. Okay, <laughs> kids have their own wills, their own personalities, right? They do their own thing, but at the same time, we are. Th- this is the uniqueness of the Christian faith especially when they get older, you are elder brothers and sisters to your adult children. So what we want to do is come alongside them and we want to love them. St. Ambrose has this great line that he told to St. Monica. He said, you have to give up speaking to your son about God and start speaking to God about your son. So what I want to do here is not only make you canonizable by the time the six week course is over, I not only want to make you evangelization machines, but I want you to be bold intercessors. I want you to understand how and why you absolutely must pray for one another, right? The, the common phrase is the one who stands in the breach. The walls are smashed. The enemy is about to come in. And all it takes is one defender to stand in the breach and say, you're not coming through. That's what we do. Intercessory prayer is a go-between between God and that individual because maybe that individual can't or won't pray. So then you say, okay, out of love, I'm going to take on this task. All fallen humans, next paragraph, also have a desires, also have desires and questions and do make mistakes in responding to those things. Whatever your loved one is doing or saying, they are driven, no matter how deep down, by a desire for the good, the true, and the beautiful. To desire happiness is nothing else than to desire what to desire that one's will be satisfied. And this everyone desires, and thus all do not know happiness because they know not in what thing the general notion of happiness is found. What does that mean? This is what it means. You have a desire that cannot be satisfied by the mere material goods of this world, even family. You have a desire that is bigger. Your will longs for a satisfaction that is greater than this world can provide. We call this the summum bonum, the highest good. We call it the ultimate end. What do we mean by the ultimate end? Well, we, have you ever heard of the phrase like means and ends, right? The ends don't justify the means, right? Just because your end is good, meaning your goal, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want in the means to get there, right? You've heard that phrase? Okay, well, why do we uh, go to school? You say this to high school students, I don't want to go to school. Why don't you want to go to school? Ah, I'm stupid. Why should I go? Well, you need to get good grades. Why? So that you can get into a good college. Why? So that you can get a good job. Why? So that one day you can provide for your family. Why? 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 The idea of the ultimate end is all of those things do resolve. Where do they resolve? Why do I want to have a marriage and family? Because I think it'll make me happy. Why am I trying to be rich? I think being rich will make me happy. I think being healthy will make me happy. I think being famous will make me happy. No one says I'm trying to be happy. Why? So that I can be rich. No one says that. Like, well, that's silly. Like, wow, man, you, you're so happy. Why are you trying to be so happy? Well, one day I want to be famous. Famous for being happy? I don't know, right? Like, no one does that. Happiness is the end. 
of all our individual choices, where it goes towards. We all want to be happy. St. Augustine says in, in his great sermon on Catholic morality, he says, everyone wants to be happy even before the words are out of my mouth. You already agree. You want to be happy. But what does happiness consist? And St. Thomas Aquinas is saying, it is the resolution of your will, complete satisfaction. You ever listen to a beautiful music, a concert or something? Your ears aren't then filled with hearing, so you no longer need them. You walk out and you're like, wow, that was a great concert, and then you forget everything you heard, right? I one time attended world-class musicians in the Bishop's Palace in Salzburg play a Mozart concerto. And you know, one guy starts and the next person comes in. These are world famous people who's in college and they start playing and one by one, more and more people start coming in until the whole room was filled. Another time I went to mass at the cathedral in Vienna and a, uh, a choir from, I don't even know where, all these choirs from all over the world come and they sing the masses that Mozart wrote. And I'm in the church that he wrote it in. It is exquisite. It is amazing. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I have seen one of the most beautiful natural things on the face of the earth. I've seen a glacier lake that was in the movie Band of Brothers, and I almost swam in it, but it was too cold. And then I've seen all this, the most beautiful Alps, mountains, awesome. I didn't close my eyes and say, well, they're filled with seeing. Why? Because mere material things satisfy for a little bit. As American prophet Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses said in his famous song about doing drugs, uh, Mr. Brownstone, I used to do a little and the little wasn't doing, so the little got more and more. No one knows that. Yeah, you're going to pretend like you don't know the lyrics. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I couldn't possibly. I'm so pious. I only know church music. Uh, I used to do a little, but the little wasn't doing, so the little got more and more. That's pleasure. Pleasure is awesome. But pleasure sought as an end in and of itself is always corrupting. As Dave Ramsey says, you eat enough lobster, pretty soon it starts to taste like soap. Right? Like you, you, we've all been in that place of that indulgent line where you cross it and now all of a sudden you feel awful. Right? That's what happens with all things of this world. Wealth, pleasure, power, fame. Those are the four counterfeits to happiness. How many people have thrown their lives away to be famous? Uh, a buddy of mine wrote a book called The Porn Myth, and it was on pornography from a uh, neuroscience perspective. And at one point, he has an interview with a psychologist down in L.A. who has become the unofficial female porn star psychologist. And she said, it's not the women who are sex addicts that I'm afraid for the most. She said, it's the women who are greedy or who are fame addicts because they will do anything to be satisfied, right? She's, she's like, they, they put themselves in far more compromising, health damaging, you know, risky situations, far more because they're seeking after fame or after money and they know it's just around the corner and whatever corner they turn, it's not enough. They used to do a little and a little wasn't doing so the little got more and more. So what we need to do is realize, okay, what in what does my happiness consist? If it's not wealth, pleasure, power, of fame, what does it consist in? St. Thomas Aquinas would say, surprise, God. <laughs> it consists in my union with God. Right, think about it. Your human heart quickly gets over, like, I'm the most powerful, Tom Brady, right? He won all these Super Bowl rings and he was being interviewed and he's like, I got to the pinnacle of my sport, my career, all this stuff. I hate Tom Brady too, but he got to the pinnacle of it. He did all this stuff. And then the, the interviewer said, well, what else do you have? And he said, I got to the top of the mountain of fame and fortune and skill, and I realized it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, and that's why I need God in my life. See, and that's the fascinating thing. The book of Ecclesiastes says, for I have put eternity into the heart of man. Why? Because time is not enough for us. A fish doesn't complain that the water is wet. We always complain that there's not enough time, right? And it's true. And so what we want to do with our very human, all too human hearts is we want to look at our desires and say, what desires are authentic and what are not? What are forced upon me by the world, the flesh, and the devil? And how can I cultivate what God has called me to? And then within that context, right, what do we do? We say, all right, am I pursuing lesser things in order to make me happy? Am I pursuing lesser things? What happens if we take a lesser thing and we say, this will make me happy. Do you know what we call that? you know what that fancy word is? Oh, I'm not gonna just give it to you. Addiction. Addiction, I like that, I like that. I'm, I'm gonna put that up there, that's a good modern word. 
you know, it comes from the same root word in Latin for dictionary, right? It means to have someone else's voice. So what else? What would be when I take a lesser good and I make it my highest good? What would we call that? Idolatry. Whenever we break the bottom nine, we always break the number one commandment. Idolatry. You take a good thing, you make it the number one thing, it ruins everything. Career. Awesome. You make career the main thing in your life, watch as it mows everyone around you down. Money. Money's good. I like money. When it becomes the main thing, what does it do? You ever met a greedy person? I mean, not you, other people, right? Like you've met them at like cocktail parties or something. The idea at its heart, sex, family, your spouse, good things. When they become the thing that you say, you make me happy. So that's one of the false idols about matrimony today is we expect our beloved, right, to you complete me, right? You remember that from Jerry Maguire? But the problem with that analogy is if I'm looking to a human person to solve every desire of my heart and they fail me because I've asked them to be God and they fail me, I live with bitterness. But if you both have God as the center point from whom you long to have all your desires fulfilled and that way it allows you to put the other where they belong in your love. You can love them freely without saying, you be God to me, right? Like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. So happiness consists of the satisfaction of all desires in God and God alone. That's what we call heaven. Heaven is not like a pleasure banquet. That's the Muslim view of heaven. That is a not a Catholic view of heaven. Do you, do you understand that? That is literally Muslim theology. That is not Catholic theology. I'm not bashing Muslims. That is literally what they teach, the Peacock Gardens of Muhammad. We don't ascribe to that. In fact, G.K. Chesterton very correctly said that would be hell because it's a pleasure banquet. And we all know pleasures ultimately do not satisfy. So for all eternity, you get to eat all the fried shrimp you want. You're probably going to hate it after a couple of years. The idea at its core is my heart is made for something that is ever ancient and ever new, a beauty that does not rest. Jesus Christ who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he is the infinite God and I'm a finite creature and I'm made for him, then the love that I experience in that union will never grow old, tired, or lame, or boring, or anything. It'll be overwhelming. And that's why St. Augustine ultimately com uh, converted. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. Right? He realized in this moment that not only did he love the highest good that is you know, offered to humanity, but the highest good loved him back. And that's what Greek philosophy could never achieve. That the sumum bonum, the ultimate end, the, he in whom we contemplate knows us and loves us and desires union with us. Okay. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. So now let's go on. If you want to lead them back to what is really true, you must first acknowledge their struggles and validate their inherent fundamental goodwill, okay? So what does this mean? Maybe they had good reasons, or maybe they had crummy reasons, but they're still their reasons. And for, as frustrating as it makes us, we have to respect that. So we're gonna go through the five mistakes that will almost certainly keep them away, although God can do amazing things. Uh, number one, force them to go to Mass. If you are a parent of young children, this does not apply to you. It is your parental duty to take them to Mass every Sunday and every Holy Day of Obligation. If you renege on that duty, that is your fault and you are liable before God. Okay, so if you're a parent right now of young ones, you need to own that. 
Now, if you're a parent of older ones and you did not do that, okay, then what do we do? Well, maybe you didn't know that, right? You own it, you repent. Lord, I wish I had done that. Awesome. We go forward, okay? But here's the deal. You got older kids? 19, 20, 20. how many of y'all have been doing this? How many, let's be honest. How many of y'all have been like, you're in my house, you're waking up at 645 and your buddy's going to be in a decently modest outfit and you're going to church, right? Come on, let's be honest. How many of us have done that, right? There we go. There we go. You don't even want to admit it. A couple of you are going to have bruised ribs by the end of today. <laughs> Yikes, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, okay, force them to go to mass. You don't want to do this as a strategy to win them back, Right. Have you ever been forced to do something against your will? Did you like that experience? Now associate that experience with the most important thing in your life, AKA God, and you'll see why many, many people are like, hey, you know what, forget it. So if you have an older child, you can invite them, don't force them. Why? Because they're gonna get defensive. Okay, so for instance, if you ever wanna be, oh, I don't know, a core member in youth ministry, a bad attitude to take is, Wow, these kids, they don't know anything. They're all so confused. I'm gonna, I can't wait to teach them. I'm going to tell them what, what's right and what's wrong. And I'm gonna get... You know what happens if you walk in with that attitude? They're going to put up, they're going to they're gonna block, right? They're not going to receive. And all they're going to hear is the stuff that they want to hear in order to throw it back in your face, okay? That's just as a catechist. As a parent, it's 10 times worse, right? So my, my caution to you, one of the mistakes that we make is taking young adults and forcing them to mass. Now, if you have made that mistake... Here's a beautiful opportunity. You can apologize and see what happens. We're gonna go through that. Uh, number two, criticize their lifestyle. Hey, you know your whole existence right now? Yeah, it stinks, okay? You wanna make your kid defensive? Launch with that, right? It reminds me, I'm gonna use a stupid analogy, but there's a uh, movie called How to, How to Train Your Dragon, How to Train Your Dragon. And the dad is this big beefy Viking and the son's like this scrawny little guy and he's like, you know, the problem is this. And the kid keeps going, you're gesturing to all of me, right? It's like, that's what I'm disappointed in, right? To criticize their lifestyle, even a self-destructive lifestyle, unless it's like, you know, imminent destruction, right? You realize that will push them, push them, push them away. You may be correct, especially in my life, drugs and alcohol were involved in certain family members. Drugs are not far from my extended family's experience. But often what happens, right? You hear the little snatches of conversation. Oh, I spent the night at his house. Oh, you did, did you? Eyebrows up, all ready to judge, right? And often what happens is all they can see in here is the judgment. So now you might be thinking, oh, so I'm supposed to approve it? No, no. No, no, I'm not asking you to give them a blanket approval of their lifestyle. But the constant thunderbeat criticism doesn't make them at night stare at the ceiling and go, you know what? Mom and dad were right. I am going nowhere fast, right? So I would encourage you to listen and reflect on certain conversations you've had and say, have I done this? And then I'm going to invite you to do something. You don't have to apologize to me. Just say, okay, Lord, if this was wrong for me to do, even though we both know I'm right, Maybe this approach was wrong. Okay, repent of that. Uh, number three, nag them. Uh, now, we all know what nagging is, right? We all know what nagging is. Nagging is the repeated prompting in a kind of a mean way to get some sort of desired action in response. Right, now we all know the experience of being nagged. Everyone's had that at some point in their lives. Like my wife nagging me, Michael, pay our taxes. Michael, you're gonna get arrested. I'm like, whatever, woman. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, okay, maybe she was right there. But the idea of nagging someone into the kingdom, I don't think has ever been a parable in the New Testament. Nagging someone into the kingdom, no. Now, the beautiful thing is there is a parable of a nag. Right? It's called the importunate widow who stands before a judge who fears neither God nor man and constantly harasses the judge who fears neither God nor man. And Jesus ends up by saying, here's this horrible judge who does what this woman wants just to get her out of his hair. How much more does your father who loves you will he respond to you? Do you want your children or brothers and sisters or whatever to do what you are nagging them about just to get you to stop nagging them? 
Is that the motive that we're going for? When we realize that's not the motive that we're going for, then we can let go of our preaching career and we can talk more to God about our whomever than talking to whomever about God or church or whatever. Uh, Number four, now this one is near and dear to my heart. Dismiss their objections. That's a mistake. I I don't know your situation, I don't know what it is. It might be very dumb in your mind. It might be very important or hard to disagree with in your mind. But their objections are theirs, and therefore, we have to take them seriously, right? One of the worst things we can do is just say, the only reason why you think or feel this way is because you're lazy or because you're this or some defect of their character. Many people are lazy, (laughs) are prone to peer pressure, are conformists. They don't want to stand out, especially when they're freshmen or sophomores in college and none of their friends go to church, right? Hey guys, sorry, you got to get rid of this party or leave this party early. I got mass at 7 a.m., right? Like that's often not a phrase. Some people do say that. That's often not a phrase you'll hear. So many people will, because of the pressure or just the environment, will succumb to the room temperature, right? But the idea is they have objections that no matter how petty you might think they are, they're still theirs. And so what we want to do is hear them out. Right? We want to hear them out. That doesn't mean this is a problem. This is the problem. And this is what um, Dr. Michael Dalphinius, I don't know how to say his last name. That's why I kept calling him Dr. Michael. This is what he said that I thought was really brilliant. He said there's like a modern heresy today which thinks if I just apply the right formulas, it'll end result in them being fixed, a situation being fixed. In fact, it was on chapter three, how does the Holy Spirit really transform Christians? I said, that's a really good objection because I had this Jewish rabbi who said to me, if, Christ, if the Holy Spirit really changes your life, then how come the world's so broken and Christians are killing other people all over the world and blah, blah, blah. When in the Bible it says when the Messiah comes, the lion will lay down well, you know, with the lamb and a kid shall lead them. And I was like, how, how would you respond to that? And he just said, we have this heresy where we think that if I just apply formulas, things will be fixed, but God wants to give us himself, right? And so I think for many of us, um, it can be very easy for us to just think, I just plug in here, you know, argument A, argument B, and I should get this exact result. As often as you know, as human beings, you want to be treated with respect, right? You want to be listened to because you're made in the image and likeness of God, and so are they. And so what we want to do is, Ask, and I'm going to literally teach you how to do this, to ask leading questions. I drove down one day, a buddy of mine, I had just moved up to the Woodlands, and a buddy of mine called me from Sugarland. He said, I want to buy you a couple beers so you can talk to my atheist friend. So I drove all the way down to Sugarland, had a couple beers. Then I realized, oh crap, I got to drive all the way back up tonight. So, but he's like, I just want you to talk. So I sit down with the guy, he's like, I went to Baylor, I got a, you know, great. Baptist education, but I realized like the Bible, I had a great scholar and he just tore apart the Bible and he, you know, you realize it's just a human book. I said, okay, well, why don't you tell me about your thoughts about Jesus? He says, well, he's just a human teacher. All that stuff about him being God, that's all made up. And I said, okay, why do you think that? Where in your reading of the Bible made you think that? And he said, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. He said, well, we all know that Mark's gospel came first and then Matthew in my back of my head, because I study this stuff, I'm like, yeah, we don't all know that, right? And it's a conjecture. But anywho, I digress. And I said, okay, well, what? And he goes, you know, the earlier books of the Bible don't make Jesus to be God. He's a great moral teacher and prophet within Judaism, but he's not some divine savior. It's insane. And I said, okay, well, like, give me a for instance. He said, like the Sermon on the Mount. I said, oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of my favorite things. What about the Sermon on the Mount? So appeals to you. He said, I believe if everyone lived according to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then this world would be a better place. And he said, but you don't need to be God to give the Sermon on the Mount. I said, okay, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? So, of course I have. I just told you. It's, I think, it, you know, I was like, okay, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus went up the mountain and he gathered his disciples. He sat down and he opened his mouth teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus just say? The whole point, the end game, the summum bonum of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven, not an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, whatever. Go through all eight Beatitudes. Neat. What's next? Salt and light. Great. Wonderful. What's after that? The six antitheses. And he's like, what the heck are the six antitheses? And I said, you have heard it was said to men of old. And he states a commandment. Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if anyone has anger in his heart for his brother or says, Raka, you fool to his brother is liable for hell. 
You have heard it was said to men of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if any man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery in his heart. I said, so what is Jesus doing in the six antitheses? You have heard it was said, but I say to you. Who's the one that said it? If you're a Jew in the first century, who's the one that said? He's like, well, it's the Ten Commandments. So God, well, I don't believe that God really, I said, okay, okay. But did they believe that in the first century? Yes. And what was Jesus doing? What do you mean? He's editing God. So you're telling me the gospel of Matthew does not depict the divinity of Jesus? You don't have eyes to see. That's exactly what Matthew's gospel is trying to do. You know how Moses went up the mountain with Joshua to receive the divine law? Well, now Jesus is going up the mountain. Oh, wait, he's bringing his disciples up and he's giving them the new law on another mountain that leads to the eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom of Abraham, you know, the promised land. He's taking it to heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And he just looks at me, he's like, well, I didn't know that. I was like, right. So I didn't do all this with my hands. I was holding a beer at the time. It's only when I'm here with you that I try to take flight. But the idea is, in its core, right, leading with questions, he's sitting here and he's like, well, of course, well, of course. And then you get to the seventh or eighth question, and then the well of courses kind of fall away. And then you get into the murky vagueness where he's like, well, you know, I always believe that. Well, why do you believe that? I don't know why I believe it. It's like, right. That's why I'm here drinking beer with you right now. Let's explore it. Like if I leave here today, you've lost nothing, I've lost. Like, so let's just talk about it. The, the idea of hitting people's objections, brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Their church is 2,000 years old. She's heard it before. Many of her saints have voiced the same objections. And they're saints because they didn't leave it at that. One day I was at the Franciscan University Studentville Conference, and I said, I want everyone here to know. I had 15 minutes to prove the existence of God. It was a great talk. And uh, I was sitting there, and I'm like, this is absurd. I said, everyone, I want you to know I'm not going to prove God's existence to satisfy your hearts. What I'm here to do is to point to the classical arguments for God's existence and just let you hear some of them so that you can go and find like, oh, this stuff actually exists. People are responding to the objections I see on the internet all the time. So I go through all this stuff and I said, but the first thing I want you to understand is this. It's okay to ask questions. Hang a question mark on God's existence, on Jesus' existence, the resurrection, the Eucharist, Mary, the saints, right? All that stuff. Hang a question mark on it all. A thousand questions does not a single doubt make, as Saint uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman said. So what we need to understand is the patience that we need to have with our kids comes from this place that their objections are real, even if they're lame, right? They're real to them. And so when we begin to ask questions, we begin to go deeper. A girl who was going into her freshman year at MIT, full scholarship, came up to me and said, crying, crying. She said, you gave me permission to ask questions when I felt so guilty for having them. She said, I didn't even know I could ask questions because every time I did, someone said, the worst thing you could say in the Catholic Church, don't question, just take it on faith. Take it on faith. Just believe. Don't do that. If you have questions, ask. St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, which that references right there in the middle of that paragraph, all it is is questions and objections. It's filled with it. If you ever have trouble sleeping, I would encourage you to read. <laughs> Assume that you can change them. Don't. What do we say about assumptions? Don't make them. <laughs> so <laughs> what we want to do, <laughs> what we want to do is we want to pray as if we believe that God can change them, right? And we want to just be available. The moment we impose instead of propose is the moment that they're going to get defensive instead of being open. And what we desire from their hearts is openness. So uh, in chapter seven, so if you look at the top, um, what we did was we took chapters four and seven. Chapter four is like what not to do. Chapter seven is what to do. So we're going to look at these five ways to draw them into a loving relationship with you. Because you might be the bridge, but you're not the end, right? Who's the end? God, right? So your spirituality, your timetable, you have to give it over to him. Amen? All right, listen to the words of American prophet DMX, a rapper. In the voice of God, I may not come when you want, but yo, 
I'm always on time, okay? It's God's timing, not ours. That goes over much better in the prisons. Okay. <laughs> now, whenever I did that, they were like, oh, he called DMX, right? And I'm like, it's gonna give it to you. Okay. Number one, make your love unmistakable. Make your love unmistakable, right? Are they earning your love? And do you just love them? Do you love them for their first name or for their last name? Right? Sometimes in the sports fields, we tend to love them for their last name. <laughs> I didn't make the team, he did. <laughs> so we're living vicariously through them. Make your love unmistakable. Pour your love out on them. I told you the story, I think on the first day, and if I didn't, mea culpa, but uh, two or one evangelical church trained on two models of evangelization and sent missionaries to Bangkok. One traditional stand on tree corners, pass out pamphlets, try to argue people to Jesus, the end is nigh kind of stuff. The other did a, a method patterned after the church father's method of evangelization, which was, hey, we're gonna move into this apartment complex, the same apartment complex as the other missionaries, but we're gonna go door to door, instead of giving them pamphlets, we're just gonna see how they can help. So what did they do? They loaned out, they got some tools and they did a tool rental. They went out of their way, hey, I know how to fix that, so they would fix it. They said the mission was preaching versus blessing. At the end of the year, they come home. Preaching converted two people. Blessing converted 100. Be a blessing. Look for ways to bless them, right? Look for ways to bless them, okay? Make your love unmistakable. Number two, ask for and express forgiveness. This is hard for parents, right? It's hard for us, right? Uh, Dave Ramsey calls it the diapered butt syndrome, right? He's meaning this for kids talking to their parents. It's like if anyone's ever diapered your butt, they don't want to talk to you about relationships and money, right? <laughs> Mom, dad, you got to get Dave Ramsey's book. And they're like, let's settle down, right? <laughs> it becomes hard in the reverse. This is that humility, right? This is humiliation. I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. It's so hard to own it, let alone to ask for it. Will you forgive me? But I'm telling you, if you're aware of anything, there is power in asking for forgiveness, not demanding it, right? In, in the 12-step program, there's so much wisdom. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been a part of a 12-step program or been with anyone in a 12-step program. There's so much wisdom. If you know someone in AA or NA or uh, you know SAA or any of those different ones, talk to them. Because chances are they're probably the most honest people you'll ever meet. I know a guy who only hires people who have been in a 12-step program because they are brutally honest. But one of the lines that they have, one of their steps is to go, especially in AA, if you've hurt people during your period of alcohol abuse, go and ask for their forgiveness. Not demand, but ask. Unless you're asking for forgiveness will hurt them even more, right? Because some people have shut other people out of their lives. So what we want to do is to be able to say, will you forgive me? And I forgive you. It's hard sometimes. Number three, take an interest in their hobbies. So Branavat told us a story that a dad's son had drifted away from the church. His son was really into heavy metal music. The dad was not. So he goes one day to his son, and he had bought like $200 tickets to his son's favorite band, he bought two tickets and he went with his son and he didn't like it, right? The weird imagery, the horrible, you know, whatever. I love that crap. But uh, So he goes with his son and his son, you know, was floating, right? He said within six months, his son had started going back to church, right? There's no magical formula, but what did he do? He was on the lookout to bless his son. He's on the lookout to increase the relationship, not to increase the relationship so that you get converted. Jesus says, love your neighbor, he doesn't say, love your neighbor, but only if they show signs of conversion, right? And then ignore the heck out of them, right? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that's the steps that we have to take. Can we walk up to our children and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's powerful. Take an interest in their hobbies, and then four, cultivate a house of hospitality. Are they welcome? Are they welcome? Are they welcome? This is in your heart, of course, it starts there, your home. Right? Are you looking for places to be hospitable to them? Because in an increasingly isolated digital world, an open door, a warm meal, a fresh beverage is often many people's bridge back to community, to sanity, right, to faith. It really is. I have friends who hold uh, what they call Wine 30 uh, every day at like 5.30 or 6.30 on their front porch in Florida. They live in Tallahassee. They're, they used to work for Life Team running their summer camps, and now they're like full-time dedicated missionaries, and they 
fundraise, got a house, they live there, and all they do is evangelize their neighbors. How do they do it? Wine 30. Nothing more complex than that. Building community, going out of your way, right? Me and my wife before COVID used to have a budget for potlucks. Why? Because I don't know if you know this, but millennials are hungry and they have no money and they're sad people. So you invite young adults over, all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, I'll just come for the food. Just like the prisoners, right? Just like the inmates. They're like, yes, I will come for the food. And then they're there and they get to hear a good message, right? But so many people, Stephen Lenahan used to be used to be an employee here. He said that he moved here because he had a whole group of friends. I can't remember what they called themselves. They had a name for their friends. And they're a whole group of guys, and they're awesome guys, right? And, all, and their wives all got along, and it was great. But he, he was feeling this weird disconnect. And then one day, me and my wife invited him over. Okay, potluck. We had a handful of people over, a handful of families over. About a year later, he had said, you know, like it was this weird, honest sharing moment. He said, you know, the first time I actually felt welcomed was when you and your wife invited me over for a potluck. And I was like, that's weird because your friends were here and you were going over there often and you're going out with them often. And you had that. And he said, yeah, but it was, it was different because they're like the young adult friends that I had when I was in my 20s as a youth minister. But you're like my grown-up friends, right? And he's like, and it was just a different thing. So we had another couple where as a husband and wife, they were going through a very difficult time. They were here from Louisiana and they just, they had no family here in Houston. Oil and gas brought them out of here and they felt alone. Now I knew that they were obsessed with LSU. I know nothing about college football. I don't care to know anything about it. I do not care. Oh, FCC, whatever. Okay, so all this stuff. So what did I do? I invited Stephen Lenahan over who's obsessed with the Georgia Bulldogs. Apparently that's a team and uh brian jones over who's obsessed with the ohio state and they came and you know what we had a potluck at my house all this stuff they were talking and wouldn't you we never talked with them again after like other than highs and hellos at church it was enough to heal whatever it was that was there that's all they needed was a break a community and experience right for many of us that's all we need is this experience of just generous love, okay? So cultivate a house of hospitality. Number five, plant seed gifts in their life. Okay, so what I wanna encourage you, what does this mean, seed gifts? You're, you're not yelling at them, you're not preaching them, preaching to them, right? Maybe just uh, an eight by 10 photo of me and just send it to their house. You don't know if it won't work, no. So what you wanna do, <laughs> well, dad, I am now an atheist, thanks. <laughs> How could there be a God with this? It's glandular. Um, so when, <laughs> when, what, what are we talking about seed gifts? Okay, so for instance, we had a, a woman whose husband is a stone-cold atheist. And when I say stone-cold atheist, I mean a jerk about his atheism. She said, what should I do? And I said, number one, he hates Christianity because he thinks it's stupid and irrational. So be rational and study your Christian faith. But also... Leave the books around the house. Just leave them around the house, right? Just let them have the book. Like, the, oh, it's on the coffee table. Uh, what was the book? Reverend Timothy Keller, on uh, uh, The Nature of Belief. Right? It's an excellent book for skeptics. It was written for skeptics. It's not adversarial. It's like, hey, this is why we believe what we believe in terms of just mere belief, right? For your, if you have anyone in high school, I taught them this if they were freshmen last, last fall. I went through each of the classes was a different book that had that theme, right? So I said, just have stuff like that out. Have it be visible. And not like, oh, I'm being coy. But like read the book first and then leave it there, right? Like don't just put the books out and be and think that it'll do enough. Here's another thing. Bishop Barron's Word on Fire Bible. I'm, I swear, I'm not getting any money from them, even though I keep telling their stuff, telling their stuff. But his Word on Fire Bible. Have you heard about this? It's the book of the Gospels. It's richly decorated with some of the most beautiful artwork, beautiful fonts, and it's filled with commentary. It's a beautiful book. I got one, huh? So beautiful. It's so beautiful. I got a brand new leather version because I'm an influencer, right? <laughs> and I, I was drinking a really fruity drink. And I said it down. No. Yeah, apparently Bishop Aaron thought that was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so what did I do? Take that book and just buy it and send a copy. Send a copy to someone. It might not be the thing, but it's a thing, right? And, you're, and it's not a harassing thing. It's a seed gift. It's a little thing in there. You know, maybe they're a police officer. Send them St. Michael the Archangel, right? Find out what their thing is, their profession. Is there a patron saint? Send them a little medal. Let them know that you're, it's a token of you thinking of them, right? And that can be something that has repercussions in their lives, 
One of the most important books written in the last 10 years in the Catholic Church is Sherry Waddell's Forming Intentional Disciples. She draws on this five thresholds, which is came up by two evangelical pastors who did college evangelization. This is put out by InterVarsity Press, which is a Christian press. It's very handy. Now, when we talk about conversion, right, winning people back to the faith, it's not a light switch. Either they believe or they don't believe, right? It's what she calls these thresholds. These movements throughout that lead someone to a faithful, trustful surrender to Jesus Christ. So threshold number one is trust. In moving your context, what are, or in your context, what are signs of distrust? What about trust? Distrust looks like avoidance and fear. I don't trust you. You have an agenda, right? People dismiss the church. You're bigoted. You're awful. You're backwards. You're prehistoric, whatever they say. You're so medieval, whatever it might be. So the goal in this case, if, you're, if your child's at the distrust or, or whomever is at the distrust level, right, our goal is to build trust. Maybe it's with you. Maybe it's with the clergy. Maybe it's someone who represents the church. One person in Sherry Waddell's Shosha's story, that Charlie Brown's Christmas special, watching on TV, just made that little trust like, oh, like, you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special ends with it. That was, it was just this little thing that was like, okay, that's. Simple, beautiful, simple, you know, whatever. It was enough to move them from trust into curious. Okay, what are we talking about with curious? Oh, uh, excuse me, moving through this threshold. Dismantle their stereotype, become human, be likable. Get out of the box of their distrust. Charm plus disarm, I love that. Uh, They expect blank from a Christian. What do they expect from us when they're at that distrust stage? Judgment. It's all rules, it's, you know. Yeah. You know, some white guy in Europe is trying to tell you how to live your life or whatever the phrase. I mean, I've heard it all right. Judgmentalism. Big thing. Everyone's judging you. You're judgmental. Right. So they have a distrust. So then we start to think, okay, what can I do to overcome this level of distrust? Now, maybe it's not distrust. Maybe they're not there. Maybe it's not that they don't distrust the church or church people, but maybe they're just indifferent. Right. Looks bored. You have that in any of your kids at any time, right? Okay, they just tolerate you, but they don't give a rip. Something else to look out for is the rapid fire questions. They may ask you four questions in a row, but they are not yet interested in your answers. Rapid fire questions are often misunderstood as distrusting. So the idea is you want them to be curious. You want them to trust, and then you want them to be curious, right? So this might be for one of your, you know, one of your kids or whomever, right? <laughs> I keep getting hung up on that, is maybe you just watch a history thing. Or maybe it's Bishop Barron talking about Bob Dylan, right? That's been a huge thing for people, right? Talking about Bob Dylan or the movie The Departed, which I feel like is about my parents' life. When you, when you look at this stuff, you want to stoke that curiosity. You're not saying, oh, you don't trust the church? Well, now let me convert you, right? Because that's come sometimes to them what it feels like, right? I don't trust but all you're doing is telling me I need to be here, but I'm at a distrusting stage. So we just say, okay, we just want you to trust. So then curious, asking people questions is an excellent way to stoke their own curiosity. Moving along, openness. Now here's a problem. Many of us confuse openness with conversion. This happens a lot on retreats, right? They go from not trusting to being open and we're like, we're done. (laughs) No, we're not. We're just getting started. Uh, What is their level of awareness of a personal need in their life? Share with them a need in your life. Now you're asking God to help offer to pray with them. Okay. So when we mean open, it doesn't mean they're ready to change their lives. It means they're open to the possibility that something in their life might need to change. Right? That's what they're thinking. That's an excellent place to be. It's an excellent place for all of us to be in a general way. But for someone who has lived without God in their lives, being, yeah, okay, maybe. I watched a Jordan Peterson thing on the book of Genesis. Now I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is something that's for me. Maybe I can be open. Maybe I can change. Next one, seeking. Okay, now seeking means there's more activity with openness, with curiosity, with trust. It's more passivity. They're not going out of their way. But with seeking, they are going out of their way. They are looking for answers. Just because they're coming to you looking for answers doesn't mean they're converted. It means they are seeking answers. So that's good, right? I love your openness. I think you would really like Jesus. 
Can we look at some of his teachings together? That's a phrase that's very weird for Christians to say. Right? To just be like, hey, I'm really excited about this Jesus line of question. Right? <laughs> Exploring other religions or options is often misunderstood as distrusting or merely curious. Remember, people vote with their feet, affirm the time and energy they are putting into their search, offer to help them explore Jesus. Right? They're seeking. What are they seeking? Part of being equipped means you give me a call and you say, hey, I have, you know, my, my adult son who's been away from the church for 15 years. He's starting to ask questions about the church's social justice teaching because of all the things going on, everything in our culture. He wants to know, what does the Catholic church teach about X, Y, or Z? Where can you point me in a direction so that I can learn this stuff? Right? They're asking questions. They're open. Now they're actively seeking. Don't stop there. Okay, pray, 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 because the next step after seeking, the next threshold to cross, is like Peter on the shore. What does it say? It says that they dropped their nets and they followed him. That's what we want. We want them to drop their nets, symbolic of whatever defined their existence up till that point. We want them to drop their nets and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To say, I am a committed follower. Pope John Paul II called our personal relationship with Jesus personal adherence and lifelong commitment. That's what I work for every day. I am in this class here with y'all. You think I'm trying to help you get your kids back to faith. I'm trying to bring you past this life. I love being Catholic. It's who I am. I want you to be here. Some of you probably are. Many of you probably are. Probably all of you are. But if you're not, this is where we need to be. We need to be followers of Christ. Followers and not just believers. I think Christ is sick and tired of believers. People who just believe. He wants people to get up and to follow after him. No man may be my disciple unless he takes up his cross, deny himself every day, and follow after me. That's the condition of discipleship. Why on earth would anyone in this room, let alone our children and brothers and sisters and neighbors, do that? He's real. He is who he says he is. And he's already done it for you. He's denied himself. He's picked up your cross. And he went to Calvary. Okay, so if he's already led the way, our leader and pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 11 calls him, then what do we do? God bless you. What do we do? Right? We follow after him. We're followers. Okay, so in your context, the barriers that most often keep people from following Jesus are what? The most compelling reasons to follow Jesus are what? Think about these questions. Think about these movements down the threshold. Sometimes people ping pong, which is a theological term, very accurate, back and forth in the threshold. Sometimes they're open, you know, you know, maybe a bad experience at church. Maybe they walked up and they're so unprepared to receive Holy Communion, even though they went, they grabbed the Eucharist and they're like, what do I do with this? And the Eucharist minister's like, excuse me, you need to consume that right now. And they're like, how dare you, right? You don't know. People ping pong, right? People ping pong. We have the patience to deal with the ping pong. And because I used alliteration, you know that's true. Okay, here are some profound fears that keep people from deciding to follow Jesus. Fear of commitment. Thank God no one in this room has that. Fear, I dated my wife for six years before I married her. Thank God I know. Fear of disappointment. Fear of losing autonomy. I think that's a really huge one for people. I don't want to hem myself in. Fear of rejection. Help them to see how Jesus will do a better job of running their life than they will on their own. Each of us has to decide who is at the center of our lives. Are you or am I? Right? Are you the center of your own life or is Jesus Christ? Who's the center? Someone has to be in the center or else it collapses. And we've seen that. Right? We've seen what a life that collapses in on itself looks like. And we don't want that for our kids, our friends, our neighbors, our siblings, our parents. And so what we want to do is just pray that Christ constantly reveals himself to them. We also need, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, we want to pray for the Ansel or the Ambroses in their lives. Maybe we're not the ones whose speech woos them, but maybe there's someone in their life whose speech can woo them, right? So when you look at this, I would encourage you to take this home, to spend some time going through, looking at these thresholds. Ask yourself, where am I on this? Where, what, what are things in the church that I'm not completely sold over? And then go get a catechism and give me a call and say, Michael, how do I operate this? And I will talk to you for hours and hours, right? But I want to equip you to navigate the catechism of the Catholic Church and obviously sacred scripture, which is my great joy, to help you go through this so that your faith is your own.
Okay, so conclusions. Number one, look at these five things, the five mistakes that almost certainly keep them away, and be honest with yourself, how often do you do them? Number two, look at the five ways to draw them into a loving relationship and ask yourself, am I doing these five things? Okay, and begin to come up with a plan to do it. A wish without a plan, wait, what is it? A dream without a plan is just a wish. Right, you, gotta, you gotta have a plan, that's what we want. Next, the third thing. So go through the mistakes, go through the loving thingies. <laughs> Number three, every day for 10 minutes. If you do not have a committed minimum of 10 minutes in the morning of prayer in sacred scripture, I want you to get your Bible. I don't have a Bible. Okay, well, you know, the 500-pound Bible with your family tree in it and your name in gold letters embossed on the outside, right? You know, get your app, whatever, however you prefer, and read for 10 minutes sacred scripture and ask two questions. You don't have to read a ton. Read three verses. I don't care. Read a gospel and ask yourself two questions. Question number one, what do the words and deeds of Jesus reveal to me about the Father? And how can I apply this to my life right now? I guarantee you, what you will do is called mental prayer. St. Alphonsus Liguori said, one cannot be saved without mental prayer. I have met many a Catholic who do not know how to pray what we call mental prayer. Okay? Contemplation, meditation. So just sit with the God, 10 minutes. Right? 10 minutes. I don't have the time. Eee. You ate breakfast without planning on it. Did you, did you set in your calendar? Eat breakfast from 6.05 to 6.15. No, you didn't. You just did it because it falls naturally. That's what prayer needs to be. Father Larry Richards, no book, no breakfast, okay? Ten minutes of focus on the gospel, asking Christ into your life. Then, an hour, just kidding. Then, <laughs> at the end of the day, before you go, I want you to go to bed. I want you to pray for all of us, okay? Everyone in here, we are going to pray. Here is your prayer intention. Lord Jesus, send them someone in their lives that they will listen to this week, okay? Will you commit to praying for that for this class for 10 minutes a day every day? Or five, oh, how about this? five minutes a day every day, okay? I don't care how you pray it, but at the end of the day, that's what, put it in your phone, have the alarms beep at you, right? And we're gonna pray for each other, amen? amen. Who's the savior? Yeah. Let's keep it that way. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit.